everyone, and welcome to Future of Health with Providence. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our experts, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. Use the hashtag Future of Health, that's hashtag Future of Health, and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. All right, well, let's get started by welcoming our guests. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Pierce and Dr. Nava. Let's start with a super easy question. Tell me a little bit about yourselves. So I will start first. So I actually did not come from a family of doctors. Um, My mom was actually a school teacher. My dad was a football and basketball coach. And so even like, even as early as elementary school, I really developed a love for math and science. And I knew really early on that I wanted to help people and work in a field that I really felt passionate about. So I've kind of taken that curiosity and appreciation appreciation for the little things in life into um, our practice and like been able to use that that motto um, and just really taking the time to um, appreciate you know where I came from, but then kind of pull all of that passion and knowledge into where I want to go. Awesome. And how about you, Dr. Nava? Well, I definitely cannot compete with Dr. <laughs> Pierce's answer. Um, talking about elementary school, I don't, I don't even remember what I did in elementary school. I probably just <laughs> developed a love for cheese and crackers in recess. So, for the sake of this podcast and um, sticking to professionalism, that's what I'm going to kind of talk about is how I am with my patients. So. I like to be pretty personable with them. I like to joke around with them, but at the same time, ensure I'm going to be the one to help them throughout their entire process. So you have to imagine that when I first see a patient, they aren't typically the most happy camper or most chipper. And for the most part, they're frustrated, scared, or even sick. And what I like to do is just make it as comfortable for them as possible. And let's talk a little bit about the kind of patients that you see, because you are doctors of audiology. So let's tell our listeners really quickly what that means and then what what you typically would treat. So basically, an audiologist is is a doctor in profession. So we actually see patients diagnostically for hearing, but also for balance. And so we really specialize on the front end diagnostically um, making sure the patient's able to get the objective info they need, but then therapeutically, so helping, you know, kind of the patient back to their their state of, you know, back to their normal again, their state of um, kind of being asymptomatic. And you both specialize in vertigo. So tell me a little bit about how you got into that specialty, and then let's talk about what vertigo is. So... Uh, Again, I'm going to go back to a personal story (laughs) about how I got into this because I think it's very interesting. And when we're chatting with people, most people have a story about vertigo or a family member that was affected by it. And so my interest really came from helping dizzy patients um, through my grandfather. So he was a really, really cool guy, um, really exceptional athlete. He was a hardworking leader in his community. And he had an ear surgery that significantly altered his balance and actually caused dizziness. And really knowing how this changes whole world sparked my passion to know more about our balance system. Um, So as a vestibular specialist, I I really do see firsthand with patients how debilitating the effects of dizziness can be and really appreciate the amazing effects that having not only an understanding of dizziness, but a correct diagnosis and then treatment on these patients um, is so important. And that's really what helped us, you know, launch and fuel the passion for the, the dizzy and vertigo clinic we have. Um, so I just, I think taking that, that personal experience into, you know, kind of each patient, um, is, is pretty important and kind of, you know, helps with the sympathetic part of it, but also the empathetic part too. So Dr. Nava, talk to me a little bit about say, what is a vertigo diagnosis and what does it mean? Well, dizziness is an umbrella term, um, that describes many symptoms. Vertigo is the actual sensation of spinning. But dizziness also covers others such as disequilibrium, lightheadedness, fogginess, visual disorientation, floating, swaying, or feeling off in busy or crowded environments. So what I really like to ask the patient is, can you describe your dizziness without using the word dizzy? And they typically look at me in shock and really have to think about what exactly describes their dizziness. Well, 
Listen, yeah, absolutely. And listeners who have heard our shows before know that I have been suffering from vertigo for many, many years. And you both know this because we've talked about it. And for those listening, before we went on air, I was saying that I got kicked in the face by a donkey. Um, and my whole face is swollen, which is why I may sound a little slurry. But both of you said, oh, no, your head. Because uh-huh. <laughs> you know, you know, I've had those problems in the past. But it's interesting when you say describe it without dizzy, because Sometimes I feel like the whole world is moving. Other times I just feel like I'm spinning. Sometimes it's not even really a dizzy. It's just this complete and total nausea and not knowing where you are. And it comes and goes. And it's just such a weird feeling. So I know personally that when it happens to me, and like I said, sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's one day. Sometimes it's three weeks. I just feel helpless. Mm-hmm. And and I can imagine that most of your patients come to you in this kind of like, I'm at my wit's end. How do you help me? And just talk to me through that. So when a patient comes to you, what does that process look like? How do you guys actually, you know, assess them and then decide what is the right treatment plan? So I think what's very important, you kind of hit the nail on the head, is that dizziness can be a symptom of almost everything. Um, It's very, very important to be in front of the right specialist and be able to not only um, articulate what you're feeling, but have the specialist be able to kind of tease out what potentially that could mean. So because you can get dizziness from almost anything, a lot of healthcare professionals are not really trained to identify or rule out the many causes that dizziness can actually manifest. And so patients will float from one specialist to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's extremely frustrating for a lot of people. Um, for us, it's 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 sad to hear not only that that people are having symptoms for, you know, hours, days, weeks, but months and years. And you know, just even in your own experience, it just to us right away, there's like five things that are super interesting, you know, to know about. And so I think the first thing for us is we really want to understand is the ear involved or not. So the vestibular system is the balanced part of the ear. So it's responsible for so to back out one second, the ear itself has the hearing end organs, which we all kind of think about when we think about the ears, hearing part, but then the balance end organs, which are called the vestibular system. So there's actually 10 end organs, so five on the right side, five on the left that are responsible to give our brain input from that vestibular system. So when we're sitting down with a patient, we want to know, is the vestibular system involved? You know, kind of your story as a patient, what happened? What was the onset? Who have you seen? What testing has been done? Because it's really important for us to understand, do we continue to dig into the ear component? Are we interested in the vestibular um, kind of diagnostic testing that could potentially be done? Or is this a type of dizziness that needs to be assessed by neurology, cardiology? You know, where where is kind of that that road leading to? So it's it's very important to understand the the story you know that the patient is telling, but also answer or excuse me, ask the right questions so the patient's able to answer them um, in a very articulate way. Because telling me that you're dizzy um, doesn't do a whole lot. But if we're sitting and I'm asking, okay, is it vertigo? You know, do you feel like you're spinning? Is the world spinning? Is it imbalance when you're getting up? Do you have difficulty like you're walking on eggshells or on marshmallows? Um, Is it a disassociation where you feel visually, you know, kind of like like an Alice in Wonderland kind of syndrome? Is it positional where you roll from one side of the bed to the other? So the list goes on and on. So, you know, we sit down with patients for, you know, a good hour or so to kind of understand what that looks like and what it really means. Gosh, what if the answer is all of the above, Doc? I'm starting to panic. (laughs) (laughs) So I think for us, the first thing we do is we rely very heavily on the diagnostics. This from a front end talking to the patient, there's there's definitely an art that goes into, you know, communicating and pulling the story out. But this is a pretty black and white science for us. Um, it's the technology and the actual diagnostic capabilities we have now are, are very definitive. So that's why we get excited. You know, our, our clinic is set up to be very comprehensive. We need to see exactly how the system is functioning. And we have the capability to do that now. I really want to dig in on that because, you know, you guys talked before about kind of like by the time a patient sees you, they've seen six or seven other people for it. And and you guys are always like the last person, which is great because you fix them. But 
I've actually, I've had gone in and they said, well, I can't help you because you're not experiencing it today. And that's always been my biggest thing is when I'm experiencing it, getting into the doctor is really difficult, right? Um, so how is it that you guys actually do the assessment, whether somebody's experiencing it or not? What, what does that assessment look like? And I throw it up to either one of you who wants to answer. So I think the biggest thing is going to be one, not true. You don't have to be having the symptoms to actually be experiencing or for us to be be able to kind of paint that story or, or get a good snapshot diagnostically of what the system is doing. So dizziness is like Dr. Nava was saying, it really is a very broad umbrella term. And so what we want to know is one, the story, but two, get into the clinic so that we can actually look at the system look at the eye movements and see what the system is actually doing. So there's a lot of different objective um, testing that we perform. Uh, we kind of break it up into two categories. So statically, you just sit there, we put goggles on you, we have you watch different, you know, kind of lights or movements. We put electrodes on you, um, really kind of looking at how your system is taking in and processing information while it's at rest. And for a lot of our patients, it's kind of confusing in the beginning because we're putting goggles on you and we're telling you to not move. And so a lot of patients will say, you know, oh my gosh, that's not what happens. When I move, this is what happens. Or when I'm doing things, this is what happens. But what the ear is actually doing is it's sending a signal to the brain. And then the brain is cross-checking that signal with the eyes. And so we're able to actually get very calculated, very specific input and, and data from the eye movements. So that's kind of the first wave of it. Um, the second wave is actually making the system work. So really testing in a dynamic state. So we put you in rotational chairs and we move you around and we put you on platforms and really task the system because that's what happens in the real world. So if you just kind of quickly, which is, which is typically what happens, quickly chat with the patient, ask the patient to fill out a quick questionnaire and quickly do testing to see what the, the system is doing when it's resting or sleeping. And then it comes back normal. Okay, sorry, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Move on with your life, Mary, Godspeed, which is such a disconnect between what's really happening in the system and functionally what you're trying to achieve on a day-to-day -day basis. So Chelsea, tell me a little bit about how the balance system works and how it goes haywire in the first place. Okay, so the balance system is composed of several components. The most important part is the vestibular system in your inner ear. We like to call it the GPS for the body as it controls two thirds of your overall balance and equilibrium. Additionally, we have cortical awareness of your head, body and motion function, vision, sensory systems on the bottom of the feet that tell you where you are in space, posture control, control of motor skills and physical movement. Because there are so many working parts, it's easy to see how one weak link in the chain could alter the entire system. It's almost like a car engine. One thing goes wrong and everything kind of gets completely out of whack, right? Very true. Um, well, are there specific diseases that are associated with vertigo or common causes? I know that people tell me mine is probably from a, from a traumatic brain injury, but what, what do you typically see that starts this off? So there's dozens of them that are associated with vertigo, but we most often see benign positional vertigo. Um, also vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, which is that viral or bacterial infection of that nerve or labyrinth. Um, a lot of vestibular migraine and also Meniere's disease. Oh, let's talk about Meniere's disease. I can never say it, but that's what people always say as soon as I say I have vertigo. They say, oh, you probably just have this one. What, what is it? What's the difference? Meniere's disease is basically, it's kind of classified by a few different things. So you're going to have the actual vertigo itself, but you also have tinnitus or tinnitus. It's, it's a ringing sensation or sound in your head, ringing, buzzing, or humming. So head noise is, is a better description of it. Um, but it also has fluctuations in hearing. So the hearing will get better and worse. And then a lot of times patients will actually um, report like a fullness or the ear itself feels full. So it's it's really interesting because Meniere's is very, very, very widely diagnosed um, and misdiagnosed is, is really what happens. So, you know, unless you have those symptoms and you're presenting with, they're, they're truly like drop attacks of vertigo where the vertigo hits and patients are violently ill um, for, for hours at a time, um, it, it doesn't really kind of fall in that wheelhouse. 
Well, I definitely don't have that, and I'm glad because I don't know if I can handle the ringing no, in my ears. No, drive me crazy. Yeah. Most people, yeah, most people can't. Well, you kind of, you guys have both touched a little bit on it, but like vertigo, how long does it last? Because, and I know from my experience, right, sometimes it lasts for 10 seconds and it never comes back for like three weeks. Sometimes it's every time I move for like three or four days. Sometimes I don't experience it for three months and then it comes back in full force and it's every day for six weeks. Like what is typical? Is, is there a typical I should probably say? So vertigo typically can last, let's let's say typically, um, anywhere from seconds to days at a time. So here's what I really think is, is one of the most important things is that going back to that umbrella term. So dizziness is the umbrella term. Vertigo is a type of dizziness. And so vertigo that's lasting for seconds at a time um, is usually associated with a very specific type of vertigo. So benign positional vertigo, um, where you're moving from one position to the other, or you're bending your head or changing the angle of your head. Um, typically that vertigo will last for a few seconds up to different causes or different etiologies, it can last for hours or days. And so that's really where, you know, understanding the specifics of the case history, but understanding the actual diagnostic testing and having the diagnostic testing performed takes all of that guesswork out. Because knowing if it's BPPV or that benign positional vertigo versus Meniere's disease versus vestibular migraine versus labyrinthitis, you know, all these different kind of labels or, or diagnoses that mean, or they mean different things and they, the, the treatment and the outcome is very different. Well, this is fascinating for me. I hope everybody listening is finding it as fascinating. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about dizziness and vertigo. It's a classic me mistake Someone gives me love and I throw it all away Tell me have I gone insane Talking to myself but I don't know what to say Cause you let go And now I'm holding on I guess you don't know what you got Until it's gone Sometimes you gotta lose somebody Hearts are made to bend, baby, please don't let me break it yeah. I knew I should have stayed, cause now you're moving on And I don't know what to say, cause you let go And now I'm holding on I guess you don't know what you got Until it's gone Sometimes you gotta lose somebody Just to find We are back on Future of Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and I'm here with doctors uh, Pierce and Nava, and we are talking about vertigo. Um, both ladies are with the Dizzy and Vertigo Institute in Los Angeles, and I want to ask you both, how do most of your patients get referred to you? I mean, I, I didn't know about it until Mark Cuban, but let's come back to that because that's another great topic. But how do people find you? Because I'm so excited to work with you guys. Like I've told everybody about it, but I didn't even know you existed. So I think this part is really interesting. And I think, you know, when we speak to the average balanced patient, um, most dizzy people are going to see, depending on the, the literature, between three and six specialists before they're appropriately diagnosed. That's mind blowing to us. 70% um, of patients are actually gonna start their dizzy journey um, with their primary care physician. So most patients, you know, if you're dizzy, you're gonna go into your primary care physician chat about what's happening, what you're feeling. And only 10% of those people are actually going to be sent to a specialist. So for us, the passion and the drive behind all of this is it's just really unacceptable, especially if you have a personal story or you have, you know, a very close family friend or, you know, family member 
who suffers because as a general statement, you're not going to die from vertigo. Um, as a general statement, you're not going to die from changes in your balance. Um, you know, overall, for, for most etiologies, it's going to come in um, the form where it's going to start changing your actual functional abilities, your work abilities, your social abilities. So it really was our answer and our um, interest in what is that huge gap between what patients are feeling who they're currently seeing, what resources are lacking, and then how do we fix it? You talked about the debilitation, and I have to say it's incredibly frustrating, right? Um, a lot of my work, at least prior to COVID, was really travel involved. I was traveling three, four, five days a week. Um, and it most of mine was always like travel-induced. I would get off an airplane, and then in the middle of the night, I'd wake up with vertigo. It's so frustrating. But I have to dig in a little bit on that one, too, because I can speak personally. It affects your mental health. Mm -hmm. Because it's frustrating that you can't control it. It's frustrating that you can't predict it. It's frustrating that you can't fix it, at least in my case, because you guys haven't helped me yet. But uh, I'm, I'm scheduled, right? We're ready to go. Yes. <laughs> how do you, I mean, do you find a lot of times my patients, by the time they get to you, they're just like, I'm at my wits end. I don't know what to do. Yeah, they're fried. And, and literally, that's kind of the easiest way to describe it is, you know, it sounds kind of silly, but like, you know, we keep a box of tissues right behind the chair that patients are sitting in. And it is so heavy a lot of times to hear the stories of very high profile, very active, very um, just people that from the outside seem very put together, just come unhinged because they're not they're not their normal. They're not doing their normal. They physically look fine. They're being told from a physical standpoint, you know, they, they're still able to get up. They're still able to attempt to do what they're supposed to do, but they physically are just so wiped out and, and, and drained because they're not getting the answers. And so it does start to mess with their psyche. And I can speak a lot more to that. And Chelsea and I can kind of get into that in a little bit, but there, there is a, a, an emotional aspect to this from just you know, trying to wrap your head around, is this truly the new normal? Am I really, you know, doomed to live like this forever? Or have I not been in front of the right person who understands what this is and being given the options for treatment that could potentially turn this around? I wholeheartedly agree. Coming from the healthcare industry, um, every time I've gone into any specialist, I've seen a chiropractor, I've seen a physical therapist, a, a neurological physical, I've seen everybody. And that's really always what it is as well. You know, hopefully we've cured it this time and we don't. And I kept saying, there's gotta be somebody who can help me. I can't believe that we can cure all these other things in the world, but we can't fix this. So I was super excited. Um, and, and it kind of was a productivity thing as well with Mark Cuban. And I want to talk about that because Mark's a big fan of your guys. He very much promotes you. And, and he was kind of in the same boat. He's like, I don't want to lose productivity. I don't want to be on medications. Like, help me. So tell me how you guys got to that point, because he's got to be one of your biggest fans, man. He, he really is. And I think that just speaks to Chelsea and I really we go into each appointment with a clean slate. So, I mean, we truly do not kind of walk into the appointment with any type of prejudgment because you've got people who are very, very high profile, very active, doing things from a physical standpoint that are mind blowing to the rest of the population. And they are having difficulty doing their normal. And so speaking specifically to Mark, you know, he's blogged about this before, but it really was falling into the same pattern that that most people fall into where you've seen multiple specialists, you're you're attempting to be very diligent and be very thorough and be or attempt to be as educated as you can on the topic and what you're you're feeling and trying to articulate that to the specialist you're in front of. But it just continues to kind of fall through the cracks. Something is not translating into the relief. And so, you know, when Chelsea and I started working with him, he was actually a patient of ours. Um, and so it really was kind of looking at things comprehensively. And, you know, when Chelsea and I started the practice a, a little over a year and a half ago, that's really what was missing the whole time was that taking a comprehensive approach and not looking in the silo of our specialty or not looking in the silo of previous specialists that he'd been to, but looking at the whole person, looking at the whole picture, understanding, you know, the not only the day to day, but also what was happening week to week, month to month, and what factors were going into that that were helping and, and hurting all at the same time. So for us, it really is kind of looking at 
at everything big picture and looking at each person, you know, from, from a very um, personalized approach. I like, I like the personalized approach for sure. I, I want to ask you, Dr. Nova, is, is it an easy fix? I mean, I know we talked, I just talked, right. I've had my head maneuvers. I've had medication. I've had neurological physical therapy. I've had chiropractic. Nothing's fixed me yet, but when I get to you, how, how, how is the fix? What are the options? How do you guys make the right decisions? Well, of course it really depends on the type of diagnosis or the type of vertigo, but in the right hands, yes, it can be very easy to fix. Um, of course, the underlying issues, though, treatment can get more difficult. So, for example, for positional vertigo, there are body and head repositioning maneuvers. Um, for other diagnosis, possibly food modifications when necessary, vestibular rehabilitation, and maybe even surgery or physical manipulations for specific cases of the neck, back, and spine. A lot of the times when people talk about medications, they are necessary for underlying issues such as blood pressure and diabetes and so forth. But medications such as meclizine and antivert are not fixers of vertigo. They're actually suppressants. So this is the typical drug that the emergency room providers give you if a patient ends up in urgent care after a vertigo attack. It helps you initially, but essentially just masks the main issue. Well, I think that's important too, because like meclizine, as you mentioned, I've been given that multiple times, but now I'm to the point where I might have to take four or five for it to really make an impact. And I'm, I'm worried that eventually I'll get to a point where it won't work at all. And then what am I left with? Right. So I think it's interesting that it's not really fixing it. It's just what muting it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, just a temporary fix. You mentioned food modification. I've never heard that. Is there an example of something like that you could share? Yeah, so with vestibular migraine specifically, they have specific foods that will actually trigger an episode of vertigo or make them feel off or fogginess and whatnot. So there is a pretty, is it like a, a national? What's, what's mm -hmm. the one we use, Pierce? It's one where it has, you know, what is known to cause these migraine triggers and on the right side, you know, what you're allowed to eat, but it really depends on the person. You know, you could have a mom that's able to have coffee just fine. And then their daughter that they actually pass the vestibular migraine to is completely debilitated when she has coffee. So it really is dependent on the patient. Oh, that sounds horrible. Are there, um, I guess that actually brings up a good question. I never thought of vertigo as being hereditary, but maybe some of the different cases or causes are? Is that what you're saying? Some, yes. It really just depends because some, a patient can come in too and just have absolutely nothing in their, in their family history at all for it. Well, Dr. Pierce, is there a, an age that vertigo typically shows up? Like as do children get it? Is it, I mean, theoretically, if you all didn't help me, would I still have it when I'm 85 or, or is it more circumstantial? So, um, the question is is kind of there's a there's a couple answers to this. So basically, if you're speaking just specifically to vertigo, so vertigo is the true spinning sensation. Vertigo is going to happen in about five percent of the entire population each year, and so vertigo is just that illusion of motion, um, or you know the the spinning sensation. And what happens with vertigo is it kind of goes back to those wheelhouses again. So what was causing it? Um, benign positional vertigo usually is happening in people over the age of 50. So the incident of it or it actually, you know, being higher as we get older um, is definitely true. But we can also get it in children and at any age um, with head trauma or there's certain things that would cause, you know, an, an onset of BPV um, under the age of 50. But usually it is going to be um, a head trauma situation. Um, usually with BPPV, it's also more common in women than men. But when we're speaking to the smaller number of cases with vertigo, so um, vestibular migraine, which Chelsea was talking about, um, vestibular neuronitis, um, and even Meniere's disease, those etiologies typically are going to be have a higher prevalence as we start to get older. So I guess my question for you is a big question, but if you don't get treatment, will vertigo go away on its own or does it really depend on what's triggering it? 
So it really does depend on what's triggering it. So for most people, just as a as a great kind of putting some sparkle on it and the silver lining, for most people, it really should go away within two weeks. Okay. So, you know, most people will get vertigo. It goes away in two weeks and then they, they basically just have, you know, a, ho- a horrible memory of what, what happened. Um, but for a lot of people, they get stuck. And so what's really interesting for us um, just kind of in this space is why do some people get stuck and some people just can move on with their lives without any difficulty. And so I think that for, for, me and and kind of even going through you know with a lot of other specialists that work in this space is understanding what is happening because if you ignore the dirty dishes in the sink and and maybe one day magically <laughs> they just disappear and go away on their own it's possible right um but most people who have vertigo will actually you know have the symptoms or excuse me most people who have the vertigo and the symptoms go away move on. But three quarters of them are actually going to get stuck. And those are the ones that become our patients. And those are the ones who are going to continue to tell their story for weeks and weeks, months and months, years and years. And so that's when it becomes really frustrating for the patient and the clinician. So it's almost one quarter of patients are going to develop a persistent dizziness disorder at the onset of those symptoms. And then it's even higher in people who've had like a mild TBI. So really kind of speaking to your specific, you know, situation um, or, or your experiences, it, it falls into those stats. It falls into, you know, kind of that that um, kind of frustration as far as time frame and, and stuckness, um, if that's such a word that, that people can get into. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, a lot of people won't ever experience it again. And, and my first case of it. And then to my second case was almost three years apart. Now, granted, there was another head injury in there. But in that whole time frame, I wasn't experiencing it. I was always afraid I was like, if I went on a roller coaster, or if I, you know, bent over too fast, I was always like, Oh, it's going to come back, it's going to come back in two years. And yet I was still worried. It's such a horrible experience. I don't think people who haven't experienced it really understand that sense of just overwhelming, uncontrollable crap you can't deal with, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I have a hundred more questions and I know we have questions from social. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to take those questions from our listeners. Feel like a drop in the ocean that don't nobody notice. Maybe it's all just in your head. Feel like you're trapped in your own skin and now your body's frozen. Broken down, you've got nothing left When you're high on emotion And you're losing your focus And you feel too exhausted to pray Don't get lost in the moment Or give up when you're closest All you need is somebody to say It's okay not to feel okay We are back on Future of Health with our guest, Drs. Pearson Nava, and we are talking about dizziness and vertigo, and we are going to take some questions from our social audience, um, and I know there's a lot of them, so bear with us. Um, here's a great question. Uh, my friend was diagnosed with BPPV and sees a physical therapist to help her. What do they do differently than someone would experience in your clinic? Yes. So basically with BPPV, there, with with dizziness in general, there are a lot of different specialists that specialize in this wheelhouse. So you will see neurologists, you will see otolaryngologists, you will see audiologists, physical therapists, chiropractors. There's a lot of people who do dizzy well. And one of the most important things is working with a professional that understands what they're looking at and understands what the treatment options are. So physical therapists will perform, um, most of the time it's going to be a canalith repositioning maneuver, which is BPPV is basically where calcium um, deposits essentially in your ear move out of the position they're supposed to stay in. 
Okay. So basically anatomy changes and a repositioning maneuver is performed to move those little particles, those calcium deposits back where they're supposed to go. And so physical therapists are able to actually put the patient's head, you're, you're laying flat on a table, put the patient's head in a certain position, and then go ahead and do the canalith repositioning maneuver to, to move those particles back where they go. Um, at our clinic, we work comprehensively with a lot of different specialists and, and disciplines, um, physical therapists included. Um, in our clinic, one of the most important things is that our patients are actually under um, use of goggles. So the easiest way to describe it is goggles go on. There's a light, uh, light um, set of goggles that go on the patient's eyes. And then when the patient's moved in different positions, we're quantifying and taking calculations and actually looking at the eye movements under very quick kind of um, cameras with very quick camera speeds so that we're able to actually see what's going on with the eye movement, see the canal that is involved, and then do and perform the correct repositioning maneuver. Talk to me a little bit about the eye movements, because I know when I was seeing the physical therapist, like if they moved my head in a different direction and my eyes didn't do something, and I don't know what the something was, they kept doing it until they could get the something. What is the something? Is it the dilation? What is that? So the something is actually called nystagmus. So basically the eyes are the window to the ears. And so what's happening is when these little calcium deposits move in the canal in a certain way, they're sending a false sensation of movement to the brain. Okay, so it's not supposed to happen. And then the brain essentially goes to cross-check that signal with the eyes. And so the eyes in BPV or BPPV will actually move in a very, very classic fashion. It's a, it's a torsional fashion, meaning that the eyes basically move up and over. So what we're calculating is the eye movement and the direction of the eye movement lets us know which canal, because there's six of them, which canal is actually involved. And so you know the canal, you know the, the side, so is it the right side versus the left side, and then you know the repositioning maneuver to perform or how to fix it. That's awesome. Um, you also mentioned these calcium deposits, which I've heard a lot about too. Are these calcium deposits we're supposed to have? We're all supposed to have them. We all do have them. <laughs> we all do have them. So we're supposed to have them. They basically give the system mass. They tell us where we are in space. They live on a little um, area in a, on a gelatinous membrane in the ear. So they tell us where we are in space. They're supposed to stay adhered. So just like with our athletes, our astronauts, our children, even doing cartwheels, they should never come out of position. So we all have them. You want to have them. You want them to be there. You just don't want them to move around. I got it. Got to keep those things in place. <laughs> um, well, one of the questions we got was how long does it usually take to get relief from vertigo? Um, I think that obviously is going to have a lot of dependencies, but let's talk about you guys specifically as a patient, a new patient comes to you. Is there kind of a typical time frame in which somebody finds relief or is it really varied by the patient? I would say it's pretty varied by the patient, you know, depending on how severe it is, what we find in the objective results and so forth. So that's kind of a very case by case for each patient. Yeah, because I think even, you know, we'll have an appointment and Chelsea will be out of the room in 20, 25 minutes and the patient's all excited. They're writing Yelp reviews. They're bringing her presents. Like she is like, you know, the second coming versus other patients where, you know, we've been working with them to, you know, go through and, and it's obviously a different etiology, but six, eight, 12 months. So it really depends on what's causing the dizziness. And then if there's any type of um, multifactorial component or other things going on. All right. Well, Dr. Pierce, you talked about the goggles um, and you did talk a little bit about the light side of it, but the goggles are just fascinating to me. And I know other people are fascinated by them as well, because when we hear goggles, we think of virtual reality, right? And when I think of virtual reality, I think of the room spinning and me getting super nauseous. So tell me what I would expect with kind of these goggles as, as a person who knows nothing about it coming in. So one of the most important things is really when we're using goggles diagnostically, it's all based on different software, depending on the equipment that we're using and normative data. So I put goggles on patients in the beginning to see what the ear is doing, how the eyes are moving, how the brain is processing that input and, and kind of putting that together. 
when we work through virtual reality and we work through the goggles therapeutically, we're taking the information we got on the front end. What, what could you tolerate? What were your thresholds? What were you able to um, take in and process normally versus how much you know room or growth do we have to make in order to get you up to your peers? That's usually how the, the data is compared to. Um, and so when we use the virtual reality, we're very slowly introducing stimuli again. So the stimuli is visual stimuli, it's head movement. So it's not virtual reality in the sense that you put goggles on and we're going to have you watch a movie, get on a roller coaster, and we, you know, want to see if you'll vomit. It's it's really kind of controlling the environment and creating the bridge between the problem that your system is having, the real world and all the changes and the craziness and the thresholds that happen, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis that are unpredictable and creating a plan so that your system very slowly can habituate, process and strengthen. And so that's really how we use the goggles therapeutically. You, you just mentioned vomiting. It was one of the questions we got that I, I wasn't actually going to ask, but a lot of people want to know, am I going to barf? Am I going to barf when I come in for my exam? So I think, you know, Chelsea and I, and, and most clinicians who are in this space, you can't dabble in dizziness. You have to be all in. You have to understand from a day-to-day -day basis what you're dealing with, because if you push the patient too hard, you're not listening to the patient, you're not responding to their needs, you'll throw up. They'll throw up. I'm not going to throw up, but the patient will, <laughs> the patient will throw up because you're, you're taking a system that's weak and you're taking a system that you know is asymmetric, assuming that, you know, you're looking at the ear and you're poking it, you're, you're aggravating it in order to gain the thresholds or to get the data that you need. And so we always tell patients, it's not in vain. I'm not here to make you sick. I don't want to make you barf, but I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to be looking at your eye movements and I'm going to be using my testing in a very systematic way so that we can get get that data so that I can make you better, that, so that we can use it later to, to make sense of all of it. So I think that's the biggest thing. If it's not done right and it does, you know, it's fast and get in, get out and put these on and be quiet and just listen and look at the dot. Yeah. I mean, anybody who tells you they're hypersensitive to movement and you move them around um, or anybody who's really sick with, with lights or stimuli, and then you're exposing them to lights and stimuli is going to be very uncomfortable. And if that heightens, then, then yeah, you can absolutely have them vomiting. Yeah, I was going to no say it depends on the week for me, at least, because <laughs> I always get yeah. the positional patients. So yeah. you have to put them in the position yeah. to treat them. And if they come in and they've already had a longstanding history of motion sickness and whatnot, they're going to have bags with them and yeah. you can't really make them stop the movement. They have yeah. to go through the treatment maneuver lights. Yeah, we can stop the lights, but you can't fix it if you don't make them go through the positions. So I guess it really just depends on the day and week. Yeah. Those well, times. You know, and I think with any, with any health condition that you're trying to correct, sometimes you just have to check your pride. Right. And you have to check the fun factor. Like it's not always fun. Right. It's like, I was telling you, we did an interview recently with a doctor who does like ingrown toenails and he's like, look, nobody wants oh. to come see me. It's mm. never comfortable, right? Mm. He's like, but you have to get it done. So talk to me a little bit about kind of when I when I come to you guys, what, let's talk through that process. Like, obviously, you know, I, I get there, but like, is it a 20 minute visit, an hour visit? Does it vary by the person? What should I expect? So most of our patients on the front end are gonna start with a consultation. So it's really important for us to understand where they're coming from. Um, have they seen five or six specialists? Are they coming from, you know, primary care referral? Are they coming from neurology referral? So we really need to understand kind of the pipeline that they're they're coming through. Um, there's a comprehensive review of any type of pertinent medical information. So on the front end, you know, working with the team that they've already been um, surrounded by is going to be very important. Understanding, you know, what it took for them to get to the appointment. And then from there, it, it, it's a good hour of sitting down and understanding their story and us doing a lot of the interviewing and when did this start and how do you feel and what other symptoms were you having and then what happened and what did you notice and what have you tried? You know, there, there's a lot of, of method to the madness as far as the, the intake. And then from there, it really is designing an appropriate treatment plan. Well, 
let me back out, a diagnostic plan first, because not all patients are going to get the same test. Um, not all patients, it's not, you know, the same six tests are not warranted. It's not like, you know, just get in and get out. And this is what we do the same time every time. So understanding that next appointment, you know, it could be as quick, like what Chelsea was saying, you know, if it's a positional patient, the first thing we're going to do is go through, do they need canalith repositioning? Can we get that patient to feel better um, with going through some simple maneuvers? Or is this very very comprehensive. We have to tease out what the system is doing. So the appointments can range anywhere from, you know, a half an hour diagnostically up to, you know, a three and a half hour test battery, depending on what we're doing. And then from there, then the treatment plan is actually designed. So is it specifically going to be vestibular rehabilitation and isolation? Is it going to be vestibular rehab with, you know, dietary modifications? And then we're working with the dietitians. Are we working with psychiatrists? Are we working with psychologists? Are we working with, you know, the physical therapy team, the occupational therapy team? Um, there's so many pieces that go into this puzzle. And so that's why knowing the patient and knowing the patient's needs is very important because sometimes it's an easy fix. We're one-stop shop. We are done. We are working with that patient. They leave. But sometimes pulling in the specialists that can collaborate and work very efficiently with that patient in the right order is really where the magic does happen. You just mentioned specialists and you mentioned some psychologists, whatever. I One of the things we had gotten in was um, when I hear vertigo, I think of Alfred Hitchcock's movie, right? And that was kind of a psychological, physiological, like, is it is it both? Is it sometimes one or the other? Does it usually go hand in hand? How do you make that assessment? So this is kind of the chicken before the egg. <laughs> so one of the most frustrating things for patients is we'll either hear, you know, I was fine. I was completely fine and then this hit and now I've got anxiety, I've got depression, I've got all of these different things that are starting to happen. And you know, now I've seen five or six specialists and they're telling me I'm crazy and I just need to relax. And so really what it comes down to is what happens along the time frame of compensation and could there be physical things that are causing barriers to that compensation. So just kind of in a nutshell cuz there we could speak for hours on this, but basically lack of a diagnosis for a lot of patients is going to be one of the most frustrating things. So for a lot of people, once they actually get a diagnosis, get in front of somebody who's listening to them and then has objective data that supports it, it's half the battle. But a lot of times when the the autonomic nervous system gets heightened and, and basically the system goes into that fight or flight state, there are so many things that can start manifesting. And so for some patients, it seems like everything is happening at the same time. But for us, it really does come down to that autonomic nervous system is regulating so much of is your system in a normal state? Is it in a fight state or a flight state? And so this vestibular nerve it has connections to the vasal vagal nerve and that nerve runs through your entire body. It's gonna connect every major organ in your body, your heart, your lungs, liver, digestive system. And so it's really important to understand if that vestibular nerve is affected and it has not compensated, what else is it doing to the body? So there's that piece of it. There's also physical changes in gray matter um, in the brain. So like you were saying, and for a lot of patients who have even, you know, with mild TBIs, it, changes in that gray matter is responsible for concentration, memory, attention span, coordination. So there's a lot that goes into, you know, from a physical standpoint. And a lot of times what happens the longer patients go on and on is they, they really pick up on or attempt to protect themselves through these maladaptive techniques. So you don't move as quickly as you used to. Um, you restrict your head movements. You restrict your daily activities. You go through a lot of avoidance behaviors, and that can become very counterintuitive. And so topple that with, you know, you can even have changes in the actual neurotransmitters. Your body itself from a physical standpoint is changing. And so whether it's the serotonin, which is going to be the mood transmitters that, you know, just responsible for our overall happiness and even our sleep cycles, um, or the dopamine, which is uh, that, that pleasure neurotransmitter, which gives us the feeling of movement and motivation, or even the GABA, which is going to slow down the nerve firing in the central nervous system um, and also help with like motor control and vision. It, it, 
all of these things are happening in the patient's body. And so if you're not looking at, you know, a, a very comprehensive, you know, kind of big picture, you're going to miss a lot of this. And so it for the patient, it seems pretty simple. Like I wasn't dizzy and now I'm dizzy and now I feel anxious or now I'm not sleeping or now, you know, I'm, I'm really sad or I have no motivation. If you're looking at this comprehensively, it all makes sense. Oh my gosh. I just love your approach. Like I, I, I want to do this conversation with you for like another four hours. This is going to be great. We were, we are going to take a quick break though. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation um, with Dr. Pearson Nava about dizziness and vertigo. Have it all. Rip our memories off the wall All the special things I bought They mean nothing to me anymore But to you, they were everything we were They meant more than every word Now I know just what you love me for Take all the money you want from me Hope you become what you want to be Show me how little you care How little you care How little you care You dream of glitter and gold My heart's already been sold Show you how little I care How little I care How little I care My diamonds leave with you You're never gonna hear my heart break Never gonna move in dark ways Baby, you're so cruel My diamonds leave with you We are back on Future Health. I'm your host, Mary Rudolph, and today we are talking about dizziness and vertigo. And right before the break, you were talking about um, we were talking about what a patient can expect when they come in, and you said sometimes it's a really quick, right? If it's a maneuver, um, it might be a quick thing. My question to you is, when it's a maneuver, and maybe this is for you, uh, Dr. Nova, but if it's a maneuver that is the solution, is that something that you're teaching me once and I'm doing it as I need it at home? Or is this a maneuver that is kind of like a, a one-year drug, it's a, it's a quick fix and I never need it again? Well, it depends on, of course, the patient, but typically you do a treatment maneuver um, and you put those crystals back into their home and then it's good to go. They don't come out, but there's a lot of other things too that could really influence, you know, for example, vitamin D deficiency. Um, if they have a vitamin D deficiency, it's correlated for more repeated BPV. So there's different things, especially if there's multiple canal involvement. So a lot of the times we get these patients that will come into our clinic and they'll go on YouTube, bless their heart, and they'll perform their own maneuver. And Remember, there's six canals total. So we'll get a patient and then they'll say, I have BPPV and I know it's on the right side. Well, they may have been treating for the right posterior, but they really had it in the right horizontal or they actually misplaced them into a different canal. So when I see them, they're typically a hot mess and they're sick and it ends up being a two hour appointment because they did their own independent maneuver. So please, if you're listening please stop doing that and just come into our office right away because it's, it's painful for both you and, and myself. Um, I'm pretty sure every show we have, uh, the clinical expert says, stop playing Dr. Google. Okay. This is not, this is not the solution. And it's not that we don't want, I mean, we don't want your money all the time. We just want you to be healthy. So I love it. I love it. Well, Let's talk a little bit specifically about your office and your procedures. Talk to me about how I get to you. Do I need a referral from a primary care physician or can I schedule my appointment? How does that work? So patients can directly um, call our office and schedule. So they can just give us give our office a give our office a call and our patient care coordinators are able to navigate, you know, next steps as a consult. Um, for Medicare patients, it's a little bit different. So Medicare patients will need a referral from their primary care physician, um, but our, our, our care coordinators are able to go through all of that. And um, what about insurance? Does my insurance cover it? Is it out of pocket? Does it vary by the person? Typically, insurance is not covered. Just because we have very new equipment, we spend a lot more time with the patient than the average physician. No offense to physicians out there, but we do speak with them for about 45 minutes to an hour, and that's really unlikely to see in today's day and age. So 
I feel like people don't really necessarily have an issue with the out-of-pocket just because mm -hmm. of the expertise and the quality of care that we do provide. Oh, gosh. I, at this point in time, have spent so much time and energy and miserable days that I would pay, well, I shouldn't say this, but I would pretty much pay anything to get it resolved. And I can't imagine, like, you know, I, I always tell people this when they have, it's actually one of my um, uh, fellow employees was talking about needing a root canal and, and not having the right insurance. And she's like, well, I found this doctor that'll do it cheap. And I was like, do we really want to go for the cheapest doctor when it's our mouth and our nerves? I'm not sure we do, right? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like the area of specialty, you're right, is is completely worth it. So um, I'm glad I'm glad that you guys are giving that, that feedback. Um, what about people like me, right? So I'm coming to you, but I'm coming from out of state, and we don't know how long it's going to take. Like, should someone like me plan to come a couple of days in a row? Is it like I come down the first time, then I come in? Because I assume I'm not the only person who comes from out of state. Like, how does that typically work? So typically our patients, depending on where they're coming from, so if they're coming, um, you know, kind of local within, well, before COVID, um, you know, within driving distance or with, um, you know, a state that's kind of West Coast versus coming all the way from the East Coast, most patients are asked to stay for three days. So they'll come on site for the first day for diagnostic testing, going through the actual um, follow-up as far as, you know, treatment recommendations, and then they will start their treatment on site. So they'll go through, you know, the, the following two days to get a couple of sessions of treatment under their, their belt and then designing the treatment program remotely um, so that whether they're able to travel back to their own state, their own country, and, and um, where we set up everything via telehealth so we can get things kind of up and running through a lot of our um, technology and virtual applications. Well, you've both mentioned kind of having this new equipment and these new technologies. Talk to me about what's coming down or what are the newest trends or what are the newest things you're using to treat the, the con condition? So there's, go ahead, Charles. You want to do it? You, no, you can have it. No, you have okay. it. <laughs> All right. So basically going off of what um, Pierce was saying is that when it comes to virtual reality, there's a lot of different pieces of equipment that are only in clinic use, but we have actually developed a web platform where the patient can access their visual stimulating environments on their phone, tablet, desktop, smart TV, and even on VR goggles. So this really allows the clinician to provide the best customized treatment for the patient and in the comfort of their own homes. Mm -hmm. So each patient has a different starting point or baseline for visual and motion intolerance. For example, if the patient has experienced car sickness or seasickness since early childhood, we wouldn't necessarily introduce them to the virtual reality goggle right away, maybe start them off on their tablet so it's less stimulation. Um, the goal is to make it comfortable, similar to a personal trainer. You love them because of the outcome, but probably not so much during the process. <laughs> That's probably very true. So I, I did not know that. It's really interesting that you can kind of do some of this from a virtual uh, perspective, but do you guys also do virtual visits? So if I started, I came down, I spent a few days with you, and then I came home, would I be able to do virtual visits with you extended? We sure do. I actually have a couple right after this. <laughs> yeah. So if you could speed it up, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So we, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, prior to COVID and a lot of um, the services we were providing, we we were already providing a lot of telehealth services. So patients love it. I think it's, it's a lot more intimate, but at the same time, it really does give us um, insight into, you know, kind of what's going on in the patient's office, what's going on as a patient's traveling. And it really allows um, a very personalized approach to their treatment. And, you know, it's just kind of a, a simple way to access things without having to be locked down to like a bricks and mortar um, spot. Well, I, I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask you, you know, what I've experienced having this for so long is, is kind of either people are like, yeah, I'm kind of sick of hearing about it, right? Or just as kind of you're making it up, like people don't really think that you're experiencing it, that it's just something that you're, you're, I don't know if you're bringing it on or what it is, but do you feel like there's some education to be done about vertigo and dizziness and what it is and, and the fact that it's real for people? I think that's one of the biggest reasons that we open this institute. Um, for us, it's it's simple in the sense that it, this is black and white. So you come in, let me see your eyes, let me see how your body moves, let me see what the data shows, and then let's fix it. 
that that's really kind of where our head space and kind of the analytics move to. So, you know, there are absolutely patients where as we get into the data, it's normal and the patient will still say they're experiencing that to tap into, you know, is this something psychological? Is this something, you know, that we haven't looked at from a different angle? But very rarely, you know, that that's not the majority of patients. And so the first thing is relying on that data. The science has come so far in the last 10 years, even with regard to the space. So patient education is vital for, for engagement and better outcomes. And so we're doing a lot in, in blogging and writing things. But I think one of the biggest things for patients is that knowledge is power. So there was actually a physician, um, one of our colleagues quoted, it was uh, Thomas, excuse me, Dr. Thomas Fuller. And he said that a disease that's known is half cured. So understanding what vertigo is and understanding what, what the symptoms are is the first thing out the gate. And so with us, patient education is really gonna be vital for engagement and better outcomes. And then not only with the patients, but also in the healthcare field with, with even our colleagues and with, you know, in within and without of, or within and outside of um, our discipline, you know, it's, it's really understanding what is missing and lacking um, in this wheelhouse for patients. Very, very well said. Well, we're out of time, but I want to thank you, Dr. Pearson, Dr. Nava, for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. The Dizzy and Vertigo Institute of Los Angeles is offering in-person or online visits. A dizzy-free life is just a call away. You can contact them at 310-954-2207 or visit their website at www.dizzyandvertigo.com for more information. Thanks for listening.